Hi everybody, and welcome to episode 38 of Now and Men. I'm Stephen Burrell, and I'm here with my co-host, Sandy Rexton. Hi, Sandy. Hi, Stephen. Hi, everybody. Yes, we're back from our short break now. I'm out of mourning for your departure, Stephen, and ready for more conversations about men, masculinities, and gender equality. So how are you doing, Stephen? Yes, I'm, I'm well, thank you. Yes, I'm settling nicely into life in Australia and my new job as a lecturer at the University of Melbourne. It's a beautiful city and I'm regularly seeing possums and um, flying foxes and all sorts of Australian wildlife. Um, although, of course, it does it is making recording episodes a little bit more complicated in terms of the time differences. But yeah, all good. Uh, how are things with you? Um, I'm fine, Stephen. Green with envy, possum free, uh, but otherwise <laughs> fine. So, and we hope, you know, everything's all right with all our listeners as well but we should probably move on to today's episode where we're talking about working with men and boys and how uh, engaging with discomforting emotions can play a role in helping to challenge violence and abuse and we're here with Nate Eisenstack, Dr Nate Eisenstack, who's a senior research associate at the University of Bristol in the UK in their medical school's domestic violence and health group and he's also co-director of Kindling Interventions which delivers bystander leadership programs for violence prevention, equality and diversity. Yeah, so thank you so much for joining us today, Nate. It's great to have you with us. Hi, it's great to be here. Thank you. Yeah, so perhaps to start off with, could you perhaps um, tell us a little bit about the kind of bystander intervention training you're doing with Kindling Interventions? Um, And perhaps for those listeners who might not know about it, could you tell us what you mean as well by uh, bystander intervention? Sure thing. So I guess... We're all bystanders um, at at many points in our lives. We're bystanders when we witness something occur or when someone discloses to us that something has happened to them. So crucially, we're not the wrongdoer and we're not the recipient, the the victim of harm, perhaps in that situation. Um, And I guess for me, there's a few things that are really interesting about the bystander approach so it's it's this idea that we can intervene in low level situations to prevent kind of higher level harms so if we think because often we might think that or people might say oh you know it's only a joke it's only a comment i don't i don't really think that way why does it matter so if we're thinking about this in terms of low level sexism we know that when somebody says something harmful, someone says, let's say a sexist joke, sexist bit of banter, even if those two people don't really hold those attitudes and beliefs, the next person, perhaps overhearing that, you know, let's say it's in a pub, let's say it's in a locker room, the next person overhearing that, that does hold those beliefs, misperceives the norm when nobody calls it out. So that person thinks, oh, everybody thinks like me. And that empowers them to to take it further. So for us, particularly working with men and boys, you can it's a it's a nice way of responding to that. Look, I know maybe you don't think this way, you wouldn't want this to happen, but when you do that, it empowers other people to take it further. And that can be a real light bulb moment. Um and I guess it's it's an it's an approach to culture change. So you know, one way to think about it is, let's say we're in a room and someone says something harmful and no one calls it out. So similar similar kind of situation. Most of the time, the actual norm is, at, is good. So 
it's only a small minority of people who are doing the harmful thing. But other people are looking around, not seeing anyone else intervene, and then kind of wanting to do something. But because no one's doing anything, you get this kind of false consensus. And this false consensus is everyone else thinks it's okay, therefore I won't act. And that that's this thing that encourages the wrongdoer. So, yeah, I guess the a th kind of third dimension of is of it is that I particularly like is that we're approaching people not saying you're um, you're a potential perpetrator, you know, you're at risk of causing harm. We're saying to people everybody has the opportunity in their lives at many different points to do something really positive. So especially if we're working with men and boys who may feel you know, when they're hearing about statistics around prevalence of gender-based violence, oh, you know, why are we always under the microscope? You know, this kind of thing. It's like, actually, we all have an opportunity to do something really good. So you're you're appealing to the best in people. And I think that's a really powerful um, approach. So you asked me kind of what is it? So it's about, you know, training people to intervene skillfully in these low-level situations to prevent the higher-level harms and what we're doing. Um, I think it, it all really stems from the work that Rachel Fenton and Helen Mott did for Public Health England in 2014, which was a evidence review of the for the effectiveness of bystander intervention training and, and approaches in the higher education sector. And through that project, they set up something called the Intervention Initiative at the University of the West of England. Um, and that was being delivered. Um, at the time, I'd recently finished my PhD um, and I was volunteering on the domestic abuse perpetrator program. And I was, I'd kind of moved into domestic abuse research and came on board as a facilitator of that. And so Rachel's coming from a law background. I'm coming from um, a kind of anti-oppressive pedagogy, um, social movements background. So quite different approaches to how you engage people in the room. And we started working together and there's kind of a creative, a creative friction and a creative synergy. Um, and so we then went, we collaborated with uh, Exeter City Football Club on something called Football Onside, which was a bystander intervention program specifically for use in football and sport. So around tackling those kind of locker room cultures um, and upskilling coaches in particular to intervene in those low-level situations. Um, and we didn't really, it, it kind of happened organically. We didn't kind of have the intention of setting up an organization. It, we, we did that project and then people started coming and saying, you know, can you do some training for us? Um, we also evaluated that project and the, the uh, results of that are going to be published fairly soon. But we saw um statistically significant improvements in uh attitudes and beliefs recognition of harmful behaviors intention to intervene people's uh feeling of skill um you know the competence that they have to intervene so for one of the things that you're looking to change for example is we know that rape myth acceptance um is higher in people who are perpetrating so if we can reduce rape myth acceptance through a training, then there's a higher likelihood that we're going to reduce 
the population level of perpetration. So we saw reductions in um, in rape myth acceptance, in domestic abuse myth acceptance among participants. Um, so things like that. So yeah, I guess we did this experiment. It was the training was effective, and kind of from that we were asked to do more stuff. Um, and since then we've been we're currently working on a national bystander program uh, across three years for the Welsh government. We've just finished, or we're just kind of finishing a big program in Northumbria. Um, we've just done one in Gloucestershire. So kind of public community level bystander intervention programs. And those, the Gloucestershire and the Northumbria one really focused on uh, street harassment. So uh, gender-based violence in public spaces. And the Welsh one is focused on gender-based violence, uh, violence against women and girls, kind of more more broadly. So it sounds like you're a big fan of the bystander intervention approach, basically, that it is having a real impact in your experience on on men and boys and, and their attitudes. Is that fair to say? And it, does it also present some, some challenges as well? Yeah, definitely. So I think there has been a real emphasis on the bystander approach because of the what was emerging and now quite established evidence base for its effectiveness. And there have been a number of randomized controlled trials, which is this kind of so-called gold standard of evidence um, showing effectiveness around attitudes and beliefs, recognition, um, intention to help, uh, bystander skills. Um, to a lesser extent, uh, own behavior like bystander behavior but that has been shown and part of that is it's difficult to show um, and then a, a much smaller subset of studies have shown community level reductions in perpetration and victimization so there's a kind of a push towards it because it's quote-unquote evidence-based hmm. um, in terms of the challenges so it emerges from this kind of public health approach to violence pr prevention, and that's really great. And one of the great things about taking a public health approach to these kind of complex social problems is, to a certain extent, it depoliticizes it. So it's much more, e it's much easier for people from different sides of the political spectrum to get on board because the argument that we're making for reducing violence and abuse, for, for reducing and uh, gender-based violence is a health reason. It's not a justice mm. reason. And so that's really good. But also, what do we lose when we take out a justice argument? So I'm not in this because it's good for health. I'm in this because I believe that like ethically, morally, this is produces a, a better way of living in the world. Um, but we're all, we also kind of need to be pragmatic and think what gets people on board. So earlier bystander approaches didn't so much have the kind of gender transformative dimension. So that's around thinking of seeing, I mean, as you know, mm. seeing gender-based violence as emerging from and supporting gendered inequality. And I think now, and this is true within work with perpetrators and within prevention work, now we're seeing much more hybrid interventions which take a public health approach, which take a social norms approach, and which are, and, and which are gender transformative. So see that, see um, gendered violence as supporting and emerging from 
gendered inequality and seek to challenge and undo some of the um, beliefs, attitudes and expectations that we have, for example, around masculinity. So there's that kind of public health approach versus what we might call an anti-oppression approach, which is attention. Mm. Um, I think with anything that does have a gender transformative dimension, if we're thinking about masculinity, attention that exists is around to what extent are we undoing versus rebuilding? Mm. You know, do we want to rebuild a, a healthier, quote unquote, healthier, some, some better form of masculinity? Or do we, are we saying, actually, sh let's just undo and be mm. being, you know, be humans, be beings yeah. um, with a set of ethical values that aren't gendered. Um, and I think, again, this is a pragmatic one and it kind of depends who you're working with. And we don't necessarily need to take a hard line on this as people designing and delivering these interventions. Um and then, a, and then a third challenge, I think, is, and this is, this is true when anything becomes evidenced and there becomes a will or a desire on the part of commissioners and organizations to have something, is this question of dose. So, and that's like how long the training should be. So it's like, you know, an organization might come and say, you know, we want to do some healthy relationships training. We want to do some bystander training. And we want to, you know, tackle deeply ingrained norms, attitudes, beliefs in half an hour session. Can you do that? <laughs> and, you know, this is something which I'm sure listeners will resonate with. And it's, no, we can't do that. And And actually, we have seen in the evidence that, you can cause more harm through a short training that isn't embedded within a kind of whole organizational approach. Mm. So you can actually cause backlash. And for me, that's you, you can push attitudes and beliefs in the opposite direction. Um, and I think my theory on the reason for that is, is around discomfort. So we're taking people to a place of discomfort through training like this. We're, you know, challenging deeply held um, attitudes, beliefs. We might be challenging kind of ideas about who we are and what our place is within the world. And, and to kind of do an hour with that, someone might go away feeling quite jangled. Mm. And what do we do when we feel uncomfortable? Mm. We seek comfort, you know, we, we're, we're beings that rightly, you know, we, we seek comfort and you take someone through something uncomfortable and there's no follow-up, then maybe they're going to be looking online for ideas that support their pre-existing beliefs. There's a risk that you could actually radicalize someone by doing a short training that where there was no follow-up, where there was nothing kind of supporting them to mm. go through that process. Mm. And it's really interesting kind of seeing the process that people go through so one of the things that we do and you know many organizations do this is separate sessions over a, a time period so you know that you might have one each week over three weeks um and it's really common that particularly particularly men and boys will go away you know the closing round from that first session 
they might be a bit quiet, there might be some kind of resistance and critical questioning and people will go away and then session two provided we've kind of held and held that in the right way session two is can be really transformative um and it's just about giving people the opportunity to process you know to go away to process and know that there's somewhere that you can kind of keep keep going with it can i ask i mean is there a difference between, say, someone resisting overtly, you know, and saying, I don't agree with this, blah, 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 and actually, you know, experiencing discomfort, which is on a more sort of uh, hidden internal level, and, and how you deal with that. Um, I mean, are there different types of discomfort as well? I think I think you have identified that in your work. Absolutely. So there's... It's, it's taught kind of resistance, so resistance or reactance, as it's often talked about. There's kind of overt reactance or overt resistance where people are challenging. And in, and in many ways, that's easier to deal with. Um, and then you have a more subtle kind of passive reactance where people are not on board, but are kind of more withdrawn. And that's a bit more challenging. Um, in terms of the, in terms of the, the discomfort, yeah, I've identified two different kinds of discomfort that people experience, but I guess, or, or rather two different approaches to discomfort, but I guess maybe it's helpful to just talk about what, yeah, think about what we're talking about. Mm. So when we're talking to people of all genders about um, the prevalence of gender-based violence, for example, the role that men and boys play in in not calling that out, in upholding the systems that enable and legitimize that to take place. Um, there can be a number of emotions going on. So, you know, firstly, hearing about another person's pain is painful, and that's empathy, you know. And we, all of us, as I said earlier, seek to avoid discomfort and, and seek out comfort. And empathizing with another person does produce that response. So, but for, for men and boys in particular, there, I guess there can be a few different things going on. So there can be a fear of, material or symbolic losses associated with increased gender equality so you know what what am i going to lose out here we're talking about historic privilege we're talking about pri privileges in in the here and now you know does 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 this and in in a number of ways it does and will necessarily entail some certain losses and also certain gains um you know, am I going to be losing my status, my position that I feel that I have worked hard to to um, attain? So there can be a kind of worldview dissonance as well going on. So that's maybe I believe that we live in a meritocracy and I got to where I am through the hard work that I've done. And I have done hard work, but because of my gender my my race i started 
a couple of rungs up the ladder. So it's this thing that, yeah, you did work hard and, and maybe, you, yeah, you did struggle, but also it wasn't as hard as it was for many people. So that if you, if you're really invested in this idea of that we live in a meritocracy, there can be a worldview dissonance. There can be identity dissidents. So, you know, what is my role in the world? If I'm someone who's very invested in my identity as a man and invested in certain ideas around what the role or place of a man in, is in the world, um, there can be a kind of self-view or, or identity dissonance. If I think of myself, and most of us do, think of myself as a good person, and I'm hearing these things, many people will experience feelings of shame, feelings of guilt, um, which, which can be really challenging to hold in the room. Um, and so I guess it's this thing of taking responsibility for harm is necessarily uncomfortable. Um, and it's, it's a question of kind of how we hold that. Those are forms of discomfort that are primarily experienced by men and boys. Mm. People socialized as women and girls may also experience discomfort in this training. And so the most of the bystander training that we do is for people of all genders. Um, and we do see like resistance, reactance, um, pushback from women as well. Um, so that may be around the fact that hearing about the prevalence of harm, the impact of harm can be really scary. And if I allow this into my worldview, the reality of this into my worldview, um, that places me at higher risk. Mm. So we might see expressions of resistance along the lines of, um, well, you know, what was she wearing? What had she had to drink? The kind of classic rape and sexual assault myths. What, um, Shaver refers to as defensive attribution. So if I can defensively attribute guilt to uh, the victim, if I can blame the victim, then that means that I am less of ri less at risk of this terrible thing because all I have to do is follow these rules and then it won't happen to me. So it's it's a form of resistance that emerges from discomfort, but it it affects people of different genders in different ways. Mm. How do, you, how do you respond to um, discomfort as, as a facilitator? And presumably, you know, it's, it's a high level of skill needed to identify what's going on to, and to respond to it, either by, you know, uh, engaging with it or avoiding it. Or, or how, do you, how do you deal with uh, this issue? Absolutely. So I think one of the things I want to say is that it's... So I am a facilitator and a researcher, and as a researcher, it's really easy to observe groups mm. to observe facilitators and you know take some notes you know watch the videos and think oh I, I would have done this or you know they they just victim blame there they just colluded there you know they should have done this and when it's you when you're in the moment when you're experiencing that discomfort it's it's really really challenging so I think a caveat to everything that I'm going to say is that this is what I aspire to do. You know, this is what we train our facilitators to try and do, but none of us do it perfectly. Mm. Um, and as facilitators, um, we're treading this line between rapport building and 
collusion, mm. whether we're working with perpetrators of domestic abuse or whether we're working on prevention with, you know, whole population, we, in order to kind of bring people along, you need to build rapport. Um, and at the same time, it's so easy to collude. So those are caveats. Um, I think the kind of the big, big takeaway for meeting what, what might be called backlash, resistance, discomfort in the room is not jumping in with the alternative facts. So it's so, so tempting when someone says something, let's say is, it, is expressing a rape myth, is expe expressing a sexual assault myth, to just come in with the alternative rational facts of why they're wrong. What's going to happen to that person if we think, you know, they're already experiencing discomfort, they're already experiencing, you know, maybe there's some, there's some fear, maybe there's some guilt. We're going to come in with the alternative facts and say, no, you're wrong, mm. essentially making them feel ashamed in front of the rest of the group for thinking that way. So I think the first thing is to request clarification, um, just to check that the person is actually resisting. So for we know that teachers, for example, um, t tend to read the expressions of children as, of color um, as more confrontational than expressions in the room of white children. So we know that our pre-existing stereotypes, biases um, that we bring with us encourage us to read people's behavior and speech acts in particular ways. So it's kind of checking our own interpretation first, you know, would you be willing to tell me a bit more about this? Um, maybe asking, has this affected someone in your life, um, a friend or a family member? So just kind of requesting a bit more information to check that what's going on. You're also showing some interest in that person and, you know, you're, you're not just jumping straight in. The next thing is, you know, trying to connect so when people feel othered by us um they are much less likely to take on board new information so we know that um there's been some really interesting research by kaplan et al around the degree to which when we feel that our identity is under threat it activates the same neuro physiological processes as when our physical body is under threat so when our physical body is under threat it activates the fight or flight mechanism and when our and they have shown that when our identity is under threat so my identity is a man my my identity is a good person when i feel that that's under threat when i'm put in the other category then it activates my fight or flight and that means i'm I'm just not in a place where I'm going to be able to hear the rational facts. So, as you, you know, you can bombard me with as many facts that are right as you want, but it, it's not going to go in. So, so this is where we're, the, the, the real work is, you know, connecting, demonstrating non-judgment. I hear you. I understand what you're saying. Um, thanks for raising this. It, it, takes, it takes a lot of courage to raise this in this group setting. Um, this is an important one for us to think about, um, you know, and I think for us 
as practitioners, as teachers, it's reminding ourselves that these things that these kind of tests, these that we read as resistance, it gives us an opportunity to better explain that there may be other people in the room who are thinking this way, but they don't feel able to say so. So the sort of resisting student or the resisting participant is really giving us this opportunity to have a transformative learning moment. Mm. The next bit is like, can you identify and reflect back the feeling? So I was saying earlier how these expressions of resistance are, are there is some kind of feeling underneath it. And I guess um, I have been hugely influenced by uh, nonviolent communication the, mm -hmm. developed by Marshall Rosenberg. And it's kind of this idea that beneath um, our expression, you know, harmful expressions are is an expression of an unmet need. And, and I don't use nonviolent communication NVC strictly because I think it can be uh, a, a bit clunky to use through the sort of form, formal way that it's that they suggest but i think the, this basic principle that we need to look for the the unmet needs the feelings that are going on so you know saying to someone yeah it can feel scary to think that our loved ones are under threat from this um it can feel like you're being put in a box with the bad people when you hear all these statistics it, it maybe it feels Maybe you feel like you're being unfairly judged. Um, so, yeah, can you reflect and um, reflect back the feeling and ideally identify a positive uh, motivation? So, like, I know that you want your, let's say it's a, a sexual violence myth, I know you want your niece your to be safe from harm. Um, I know you want, you know, your daughter to be able to walk home at night. Um, and not be afraid of this. And then, you know, once we've connected, identified the feeling, um, identified a positive motivation, it's then finally um, that we will introduce some alternative information. Um, so, you know, when, when we say these things, um, it makes it harder for victims to come forward. Mm. So crucially, you're bringing in the alternative information, but it's not a set of statistics. It's What's the impact? Um, you know, although I know you're joking, um, when people who do hold those attitudes hear that, it makes them more likely to go on to perpetrate. So it's it's really thinking about, yeah, what's the impact of this? Not is it right or wrong? Because getting into this, you're right and you're wrong, mm. it just encourages people to dig their heels in. It's a, gosh, it's a fascinating process that you go through there as a, well, as a facilitator and trying to sort of guide the individual and the group. I mean, you know, you've got to have a bit of time within sessions to do that. But maybe the maybe this is a sort of key moment within a session where this issue raises itself, and you think this is this is the point when actually, you know, this group is this individual is going to learn the most if we really go deep in this. Uh, is that is that right? Absolutely. I mean, it's it's another tension that you're treading, you know, like, sh what is what does it mean to get through the content? Mm -hmm. And, you know, should we park this and, and like get through the slides? Or actually, is this the learning mo moment that's important for it to happen today? Mm -hmm. And 
you know every facilitator every teacher will make a call on that in the yeah. moment yeah but yeah i think dealing with this well is really really important and it mm. demonstrates to those other participants who might be feeling similarly that actually it's okay to to have the to raise this alternative viewpoint yeah and it models a way of for those people who already agree it models a way of bringing other people on board yeah well, i guess there could be risks as well with engaging with it that you get embroiled too much in it <laughs> you can't get out the other end of it you know um so it's it's again it comes down to a high level of of skill and judgment on the part of facilitators yeah absolutely and i mean i think particularly in the world of domestic violence intervention domestic abuse intervention it's it's such a highly skilled profession it, you know it, it's such a highly skilled thing to do and it's so poorly remunerated for what it is you know you, when you think about the skill level when you think about the social importance um that, of the work that these people are doing and also when you think about the risk level because mm. you know let's sidestepping the, the bystander stuff the prevention stuff if you're working in the domestic violence context if that man is going away from that session feeling uncomfortable we also need to think what are the risks to the partner what are the risks to the children of that person going away that feeling that way so the in those facilitators tread that line between kind of collusion mm. and uh, rapport building it's the stakes are even higher mm. and presumably also as a facilitator it can make you feel very uncomfortable too <laughs> i remember when i first started observing uh, domestic abuse uh, perpetrator programs and became very aware of how i was sitting you know how i was physically embodying my masculinity in that setting how your voice is um, we did a study where we uh, analysed the videos of facilitators delivering uh, the pilot of the randomised control trial of a domestic abuse perpetrator programme that we're currently working on. And in that study, we saw different responses to different kinds of discomfort. And those different responses, I think, really correlate to the degree to which facilitators themselves felt uncomfortable mm. so there was a kind of group of kinds of discomfort that were quite welcome that facilitators felt quite comfortable with so that might be where the man is expressing pain or shame or guilt with the impact of his actions where he's having some kind of identity dissonance around this isn't the person I want to be, um, where he might be thinking, I can see these behaviors, my son d displaying these behaviors, and I'm starting to realize that, and you know, the, the, a kind of sadness and grief around that. Other men might rescue other men from having that painful experience as well. So, you know, they might jump in and be like, Oh, it's all right. You know, you're you're here. You're doing the right thing. And so we did we did see examples where they were rescued, and where sometimes the facilitators, through the the discomfort of empathy, might rescue the men as well. But in general, those kind of expressions were more welcome 
I think they're, they're kind of seen as more conducive to the aims of the program. And the aims of the program are to encourage people to take responsibility for harm. Mm. What was much less welcome were uncomfortable emotions and expressions of resistance around what we might call backlash, sort of misogynist backlash, backlash to feminism. So, for example, things like feminism's gone too far and men are actually underprivileged these days or the you know the real risk is that is false allegation is you know men are at high risk of false allegation from rape and those kinds of resistance and the emotions that underpin them were tended to be much harder and i think for all of us that they're, they're much harder to meet because they spark that no you're wrong and it's this thing that yes Although the person is wrong and we might see the emotions that they're experiencing as misplaced, they're still real emotions. And if we don't engage with the real emotions that are going on for that person, we're not going to change their mind. So it's that kind of real challenge or that invitation for us as people doing that work to think, what's, what's really going on for this person? Can I connect with them? even if I profoundly disagree with what they're saying and what's happening. Yeah, I mean, how would you link um, your thoughts on discomfort with the kind of backlash against feminism and gender equality that we're seeing in, in wider society among, you know, some men and boys? Um, yeah, how does that link in with, uh, with, with the way you see discomfort? You know, why do you think there is this backlash potentially perhaps growing and, and how can we break down some of these divides, do you think? Yeah, so I think... What we see in the room is it's a microcosm of in the room, in the training room, so to speak. In what we see in the training room is a microcosm of the wider society. And I think that the wider backlash that we see emerges from similar kinds of feelings. So feelings of insecurity feelings of fear feelings of you know not uh being unsure what is my place in the world where do i belong um feelings of guilt and shame um and it's i think it's yes yeah, it's, it's a similar thing although we might think that in order for in order for there to be gender justice then these people who are saying this, you know, they need they need to suck it up and they need to come down a peg because they've been privileged forever and all of these things. But that's not going to bring anyone one on board because what that person is experiencing in that moment is what is my place? I'm I, I feel ashamed of my identity. Um so yeah, I think it's it, it sort of links back to this, should we be undoing or rebuilding or, you know, doing better, doing masculinity better? And I think for those people who are invested in their sense of self as a man, then coming along and saying, we're going to completely undo this because it's it's going nowhere, it's, it is not going to work. And, and we do need to be more thinking okay what is a form of belonging to this that 
that you can get on board with and that isn't harmful. I guess part of the issue is as well, presumably, that you do have some figures in society, be they politicians or media figures, you know, won't name anyone by name, but, you know, who are actively seeking to exploit these fears and anxieties and insecurities that some men and boys have for their own ends, right? I mean, it's, yeah, some people kind of trying to mobilize this discomfort, you know, for their own uh, benefit, I guess. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I think it's a kind of weaponized, it's a weaponized discomfort. They're weaponizing fear and insecurity. And yeah, it is, they're offering certainty in a world of uncertainty. So the question becomes, how do we enable men and boys in particular to, to kind of have that resilience to uncertainty? Like, is it, how do we enable men and boys to feel okay with, it's a bit of a cliche, but feel okay with not being okay or feel okay with being unsure. Um, and I think it I think part of the problem is that like equality is seen as something which ta- which is separate from freedom so equality is is something that there has to be a sacrifice to attain equality and there is there's a kernel of truth to that but at the same time I think what we've we haven't really done is emphasized the degree to which living more equally is produces a, a more fulfilling life um and you know what some of these influencers are selling is essentially is lifestyle advice it's like you know you don't have to worry about this because you can be this um and we've kind of come back against that with all the ways that it's harmful we're not coming back with all the ways that actually you know connecting with the women, girls, gender non-conforming people in your lives and having fulfilling relationships is is a, is a more fulfilling, a, is a better way of being in the world. And certainly on in perpetrator groups, you really see that shift when the men who are on the group don't, it's, it, it stops becoming something that you know, social services have made me do, or my partner has made me do, or, you know, these people have made me do. And it starts to become something which, oh yeah, this actually responding in these ways wasn't helping me. I mean, and, you know, for for a long time, we've been talking about the harms of conformity to traditional masculine norms to men. Um, so in, in some ways, it's the flip side of that, but we haven't, we don't so much talk about the benefits of being a fuller human being yeah yeah Marla, just while you mentioned it um some of the research you have done in this area as you've kind of alluded to um is around work with with men who've you've used violence in their relationships so for example you were the lead qualitative evaluator on the drive project which was a major national pilot in the uk addressing uh, high-risk perpetrators of domestic abuse um yeah so in your view what would you say are some of the kind of crucial ingredients for work with men um in this in this area one of the things that came through the evaluation of drive and that has come through the evaluation of a number of other uh, interventions with men who ab- use abuse and violence in their relationships is, you know, what what did you appreciate about or what was different about this practitioner? Um, he didn't judge me. She didn't judge me. And it's one of those weird, the, the non-judgment piece is one of these really interesting paradoxes of this work. So 
if you're attending a group for domestic violence, domestic abuse perpetrators, there is an implicit judgment there because you're attending a behavior change group. So there is something which is saying that this is not okay. This is not an okay way to behave. But at the same time, the practitioners need to kind of engage with that person non-judgmentally. So it's about that separation between judgment of the person and judgment of the behavior. So so I think non-judgment is one, um, which is absolutely critical. Um, another one, and this was a tricky one for me, I think, is this line, the, the combination of compulsion and voluntarism. So I kind of came to this work through um, involvement in social movement, anarchist organizing. Uh, my PhD was in contemporary anarchist practices. And so anarchists re reject police and punishment as a route to justice and have a belief in the universal possibility of transformation. So if so, that means that everyone is able to change. Um, and if you reject police and punishment as a route to justice, um, and you reject kind of authority as the source of ethics, then you have to figure out ways of responding to harm within communities within that actually transform the the wrongdoer and do justice to survivors. Um, and so often within that kind of ethical framework, the a behavior behavior change has to be completely voluntary. Yeah, so. If you want someone to change, that person has to be on board with it. And social movements and are very reticent about compelling someone to change. Similarly, within the domestic violence and domestic abuse sector, there's there's been a kind of reticence around um, compulsion to attend programs. So, for example, programs uh, through probation. Um, where people are uh, compelled through like legal uh, mechanisms to attend a program because it's a number of people have thought that you're just kind of jumping through hoops um, and not actually changing. And I think Drive was really interesting. So Drive was, the Drive project was a one-to-one -one intervention with high-risk perpetrators of domestic abuse that involved kind of detailed one-to-one -one case management with that person and then kind of multi-agency work around to to kind of compel them to engage in certain ways. So that might be that their engagement is written into their license agreement on probation. It might be that it's written into the child protection plan. There are a number of ways in which they're kind of compelled to be in the room. So for someone coming from a a much more like anti-state approach background, I felt a lot of reticence and discomfort around mobilizing these mechanisms to compel someone to attend. I think what was really interesting for us was that those people who um, were compelled in some way reported their engagement as if it were completely voluntary. And that's a real testament to the skill of the practitioners in the room. But I think it also speaks to this thing of 
none of us want to change. You know, we all have habits that are that that could be changed. That we we all could do things in our lives better. And changing our habits is really difficult. And changing those harmful habits involves a, a degree of discomfort. And it's almost like in order to shift from one to the other, you know, f- f- to shift from an unhealthy to a healthy habit, the discomfort of being where you are right now has to outweigh the discomfort of changing. And so I think for like, for for grassroots approaches to behavior change, we need to think about what are our mechanisms. You, you, we do need to compel people to a certain degree. And it's it's one of these things where it's, it's another productive tension and straight compulsion is never going to change anyone. Mm. But most people are not going to change where it's purely voluntary. So it's thinking about how we combine the two. Mm. Yeah, there's some extraordinary tensions in there. But, but fascinating to hear you talk about uh, uh, about this work and some of the sort of depth to it as well. And I, I feel myself thinking, some listeners are going to say, well, you, you mentioned that phrase, you know, a rejection of police and punishment. In a way, you've explained what you mean. But I wondered if you want to say a bit more about that, because, you know, I, I think most people out there probably have very little connection with you know ideas around anarchism to be honest and actually mm. maybe there are some ways in which it is helpful to us so perhaps you could just say a little bit um about that yeah sure so anarchists rejects police and punishment on kind of two core grounds one is pragmatic um which is that punishment doesn't um doesn't reduce recidivism so it doesn't stop people from doing the harm so for that reason it's it's not a a really a rational approach to reduction of social harm um and then the other is that is more an ethical ground that it causes more harm so that through putting people in prisons we are we're not transforming them we're we're harming those people. We're not necessarily cultivating uh, a restorative approach. So it doesn't necessarily uh, encourage that person to take responsibility for what they've done. Victims and survivors of different crimes will want different things and what justice means to them really, really varies. But one of the things that kind of often that stands out is that is that the the wrongdoer that the perpetrator recognizes what they've done and punishment doesn't doesn't cultivate that so um interestingly ostensibly or you know majority white uh, euro-american anarchist organizing um has drawn quite heavily on ostensibly women of color led and queer anti-violence organizing predominantly in the US around these ideas of transformative justice. And part of the reason for that is the critique of the harms caused by police and punishment. So if we think about the um, disproportionate incarceration of black men and the desire within communities of color to uh, not incarcerate more men 
more black men. Um, there have been the kind of development of what's called community accountability. So thinking about how we can um, do justice around gender-based violence from the in in grassroots ways. So th this is these are these kind of community accountability processes. Mm. I feel we could probably have a whole other podcast on that, but it's, it's very interesting to hear you talk about, you know, um, what else is going on, which you don't really hear about so much as well, when, you know, the dominant narrative seems to be just about punishment, you know, and, and pretty much nothing else. So, because I was also thinking in terms of, you know, anarchist practice, maybe under, under COVID, you know, we saw a sort of mushrooming of self-help type schemes and food distribution projects and so on and so forth. And that also draws on anarchist thinking doesn't it i mean it, these were non oh, non-state uh, uh initiatives hugely yeah so i mean i think you know one way of thinking of, one way of thinking about anarchism is this belief in human capacity to self-organize and one of the things that we're told is that in the absence of authority in the absence of a state that humans will there will be a war of all against all mm. um, and it'll be survival of the fittest and actually when we look at what happens what has happened historically in a number of different situations we look at hurricane situations we look at covid where the state isn't meeting the need people self-organize you know people can do this mm. um so yeah and i, I think yeah the covid food distribution networks are a really excellent example of that mm. well again we could talk further about it but i think we probably should stop there we've, we've come to the end of our time really uh but i just want to say thank you so much for for coming on and talking about all these ideas and issues uh, in such a uh, an interesting way it's been great to talk to you thank you no it's been an absolute pleasure yeah so great to listen to you thank you so much nate it's much appreciated thank you Well, Stephen, I don't know about you, but I'm feeling like I, I might have to become a bit of an anarchist now after that conversation. <laughs> it was really, really great, wasn't it? And it, it reminded me of uh, our discussion with Jens van Tricht in, I think, mm. uh, November last year. Mm -hmm. You know, he mm -hmm. talked a bit about his background, uh, squatter movement and social movement stuff. And I, I think he mm. would have quite a lot of uh, uh, connection with someone like mm -hmm. Nate, actually. But what did you think of our conversation with Nate? Yes, no, I, I agree with you. I was really kind of intrigued in everything he had to say. He was very engaging to speak to. Um, I mean, one thing it makes me think about, I think his his focus on this issue of discomfort, I think is so interesting and so important. And I think it applies to lots of different things, doesn't it? But it did make me think about how perhaps sometimes, you know, if we're trying to have conversations with men and boys about gender equality and feminism and violence prevention, you know, perhaps we can kind of tiptoe around it and be very nervous about kind of um, upsetting them or making them uncomfortable um, and therefore can try to focus very much on coming across with this very palatable message. But I think, you know, as Nate points out, actually often the real change does come from those places of discomfort, doesn't it? That actually, I guess, yeah, if, if we feel uncomfortable, it's because we're pushing at something which maybe needs to change. And therefore, we, maybe we need to have those uncomfortable conversations. But I guess he also shows that, of course, we can't just kind of, we just can't just make men incredibly uncomfortable on its own either. We need to do that in a way which is very skillful and empathetic and, and sensitive. Um, yeah, 
yeah what, what about mm-hmm. you what did you take from it yeah no i agree with you and and um i was interested in, in his you know explanations of of the sort of nuance of group dynamics if you like and you know how skilled and sensitive the facilitators have to be to work in mm-hmm. those environments and i, I was Absolutely. remembering when he was talking i mean i very occasionally when i was working on sort of prison and probation stuff used to go along to groups this we're talking sort of 1980s where you know there'd be a group of young men a couple of facilitators and they'd be talking about their offending behavior and what what was you know behind that and so on and so forth and i, I vaguely remember from that time that the primary approach was about trying to get young men to take responsibility for what they'd done you know responsibility seemed to be a key word and and even force them to admit that what they'd done was wrong i mean i'm probably you know um being a little bit simplistic about the approach then but it feels like the approach that nate was describing is uh, much more sensitive and flexible and that theory has moved on so i was mm-hmm. interested by that um mm-hmm. and the other thing that i thought was really fascinating is you know how he described the groups that he runs as in a way a microcosm of of wider society and you know mm. all the sort of insecurity and fear and lack of belonging that you know can come up mm. in those groups also comes up in mm. wider society and you know how how the same issues uh can appear at that level what he described i think mm. as weaponized discomfort how that can be used by politicians you know uh, of various hues uh, to, you know, again, he said this, offer, offer certainty in a world of uncertainty. In a way, what he's doing in those groups actually has resonance for, for wider society too and, uh, and how we address issues of, of difference and how we, how we bridge the divide. So mm. I, I don't know if you picked up on that point as well. but uh... Absolutely. No, it's got so much resonance, hasn't it, both for conversations about gender equality but also all sorts of other political issues because we do live in societies which in many parts of the world are becoming more and more polarized there's so much uncertainty out there so much anxiety about and and props for lots of men that kind of a sense of losing control and 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 kind of and yeah as you said feeling real uncertainty and i think that the techniques he describes could be really beneficial in lots of different contexts couldn't they and and really highlight that we need to try and listen to each other more and actually engage in actual dialogue and you know have empathy for other people's positions and try and hear where they're coming from and then engage with them about that and of course that's hard if people are saying things Mm. which we strongly disagree with or which might even be kind of harmful or discriminatory and things like that Mm. but if we actually want people to change because as you said and as he said like we can't make men change can we men have to want to change themselves and i guess therefore yeah we we have to work with them there and not kind of just try and ram things down their throats i guess so i think yeah his his methods have so much um potential applicability i guess yeah Mm -hmm. i was also pleased at the end where he you know endorsed the value of uh some of the sort of mushrooming of uh, effectively anarchist type self-organizing schemes you know at local level around covid around food distribution and so on so forth absolutely no definitely 
Yeah, we should probably stop there for this, yep, uh, this episode. I think we should. Shouldn't we, Sandy? Yep. Yes, well, uh, thank you. Thank you, everybody, for listening. Uh, it's great to be back with you, and yeah, we'll be back with another episode soon. In the meantime, if you haven't done so already, please do subscribe to Now Men wherever you get your podcasts. You can contact us, as always, at nowamen at gmail.com if you have questions or feedback, and do share the podcast with your friends and colleagues and family members. And uh, yeah, take care. Thanks for listening. Bye.